Hey, how you doing out there? Wow, far away, far away. I'm going to start this morning with a little scripture out of John chapter 14, starting in verse 20, 19 to 26. Uh, I'm not sure we have it on slides, but so you'll just have to pay attention, or if you get your Bible apps, you can look at them online as we're going through it. Jesus talking, it's in uh, upper room discourse uh, after Passover dinner. It's his last night on earth as a human being, um, at least in this current status. Um, he's given all the disciples a lot of information. We're teaching through all of that as we go through the Gospel of John. So here's what he says at this time. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, parentheses, parentheses, not Iscariot, (laughs) make it clear, it's not, because Judas has already left the scene, right? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Let me pray for us, then we'll dig in. God, thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for promises that you make and the promises that once you make them, you keep them. We ask that you would give us insight into you and us this morning, that we know how to serve you better, line with you more, and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by the way, I promise before we finish this message, you will uh, get why I chose that particular little clip from The Princess Bride. Uh, it's uh, speaking of promises. We live a lot of our lives by promises, don't we? Like, I don't know if you've ever bought a car. Anybody bought a car ever? The manufacturer, if you, if you buy a new one, will, will make you a promise. Actually, if you buy a used one, you'll get like a 60-day whatever guarantee. But the new one, they'll give you a warranty for so many miles or so many years, whichever comes first, that uh, that car is going to be reliable for that long. If it happens to break down during that time, you're supposed to be able to bring it back, and they'll fix it for free, unless, of course, it's tires or brakes or windshield wipers or lights or the engine or transmission or battery or anything else that really matters. At least that's some, 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 some people do that. But they give you a promise, and you... If you haven't saved up the money to buy it outright by following Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University uh, stuff, you're going to make a commitment, a promise to make monthly installments and payments on that car. And it's a promise that you make, and it's a promise that you'll keep if you want to keep the car. When couples get married, they make promises to each other, right? Public vows, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part but like with a car. Promises can sometimes be broken. And when they are, 
disappointment always follows. If not addressed, as the movie The War of the Roses demonstrates, the consequences can be lethal. Turns out that a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. If a person's reliable, the promise probably is too. The person is unreliable, the promise is probably bogus. Now, God makes a lot of promises in Scripture, lots of them. How many, you ask? Well, I didn't count them up myself, but in the December 24th, 1956 edition of Newsweek, I'm sorry, Time, it was Time, it has an article there about a guy from Kitchener, Ontario, by the name of Everick Storms, who read through the Bible a bunch of times, but on the 27th time he read through the Bible, it took him a year and a half, he actually cataloged all of the promises that God made to human beings. And he discovered that there were 7,487 promises God made to mankind. And it turns out when God makes promises, he keeps them. By the way, that actually is the 1956, December 24th, front cover of that Time magazine. But you might be interested in that. Many of you weren't alive then. You should have been. Okay, so Jesus is making these promise, promises. Uh, by the way, let's say, another one I have, God, Joshua in the Old Testament, he did this. He was dying. He was about to die, and he, and he says this, and he's been leading the people of Israel, and so he, he encourages them to keep following this God of theirs, and he says this, and now I'm about to go the way of all flesh or the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Peter in the New Testament describes God's promises as exceedingly great and precious. Apparently, he was persuaded that God's promises stand the test of time. But there's a question. What do we do with these promises of God? Some of you might say, well, I underline them. I'll underline them in my Bible. Okay, cool. What else? Well, you, you might memorize them, okay? If you're a teacher, you might say, well, I, I, I analyze them and take them apart. But I think based on what Jesus is saying here in his passage, the best response would be, man, I trust them to be true. And I live my life as if they are true. In this section of the Upper Room Discourse, we've been studying, and Jesus has given the disciples a lot of promises. For example, he's promised to prepare a place for them, and he's going to come back and get them. He's promised that they would actually do greater works than he's done on the earth than while he was here. He promised he would dispatch the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who would be their comforter, their counselor, their helper. And then in that, uh, this passage today, he adds four more promises. Here's the first one. Supernatural life. We see this pop up in verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. That's what it means. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be crucified. And the unbelieving world won't see him again. He's not going to appear from the dead. and He's not going to appear back from the dead and show himself to the world. He's going to focus on showing himself to his disciples, hundreds of them, over a period of time. And when he does that, they're going to see the guy that's died, now alive, and it's going to be visible proof to them that just as he was resurrected, so too will they experience that because Jesus promised that too. As Because I live, you will also live. 
I don't think Jesus is just making a promise that one day, you know, in the sweet by and by, thousands of years from now, eventually, after you die, wait a time in the grave, you'll, you'll be raised. I think what he's speaking about is that you're going to see me alive, and when you do that, you're really going to come alive. You're going to experience a whole new level of life that you never experienced before the indwelling Holy Spirit showed up. Do you think there's a difference between existing and living? Existing and living. Maybe you know what I'm getting at. Some people just exist, but they're not really living. They've got a job. They work. They put money on the table. They go to bed at night and sleep. They get up. Routine starts all over again. In the process, they make a few friends. They buy a few nice things. They get married. They have kids. They take vacations. They retire. And they die. And they call that life. But it might just be existing. Then there's life, really living. One psychologist, Harvard-trained by the name of William Marston, asked 3,000 people recently a very important question, simple question, but important. The question was this, what do you have to live for? He was utterly shocked when he got the answers. 94% of the people who responded said they were merely enduring the present while waiting for the future. Their answers range from, I'm waiting for next year. I'm waiting for a better time. I'm waiting for a change. I'm waiting for graduation. I'm waiting for someone to die. Okay, that last one's just a little creepy. <laughs> to me, this survey is not that shocking because we know from Scripture, God's Word, that apart from Christ, you can have a physical life, you can have an emotional life, you can have a psychological life, but from God's perspective, you're really just kind of a dead man walking. So you are, man, woman, child, dead, walking. Here's another dead man. Everywhere you see them getting gas, you see them getting groceries, see them filling up their cars, right? The Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Christ, there's something that's dead in us that becomes alive. The spiritual side of us comes alive. Not physically, the spiritual part. The Bible says it this way in Colossians. Paul is talking to a bunch of people who have gotten saved, experienced, their, uh, experienced this, uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit coming in at, because of their faith in Christ. He says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, now they were alive. I mean, they were physically alive. They were psychologically alive. He said, But you were dead in your trespasses, your sins, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of those trespasses. Again, my mind always goes to the clip we saw from The Princess Bride, one of my favorite movies of all time. Lots of great lines in there, including, well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. Right? Big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Turns out there's actually some good spiritual truth in that statement. Because the Bible says that when you are born into this world, you are, spiritually speaking, dead, all dead. Spiritually speaking, you might have a physical life, but you're dead in the area that really matters to make you alive. And I think Jesus is promising this kind of life to his disciples. So I want to recap something that I mentioned. Well, it's been a couple of years now. The very first episode that we preached on the Gospel of John, the very first message, uh, this is the 63rd message, so it's been a while. 
I want to recap something I mentioned when we first started this series. Uh, I mentioned that the Bible has three different words that is all translated, are all translated into our English word, life. Put them on the screen for you. Bias, suhe, and zoe. The first word the Bible uses to describe your life is the Greek word bias. We get the term biology from it. It means physical life, the now life, flesh and blood, right? It's all outward. It's where a lot of people spend most of their time, most of their energy. But Jesus says this, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of this life, bias. Years ago, a poll was taken that asked Americans, if you could just change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Almost nobody said, oh, my, my, my character, my, my personality. Everyone almost said my outward appearance, my age, my body type, my weight, right? Hair color, all are reference to bias, biological life. That's where a lot of our human attention goes. Second word the Bible uses for life is the Greek word suhe. It's where we get our English word psychology or psychotic. <laughs> Psycho comes from that. It's the mind, will, and emotions, psychological life. You can have physical life. You can have an active psychological life. But according to the Bible, still be mostly dead. Right? To be really alive, it takes the third type of life the Bible speaks about, which is, not, not, which is the term zoe. It's really... Uh, spiritual life. Its focus shifts from earth to kind of eternity. Connection with God. Zoe is used 143 times in scripture, and it doesn't just speak about life going on forever and ever. See, the truth is, and scripture is very clear about this, everyone who's ever lived is going to have an existence that goes on forever. Every single person will exist forever. The key question is, where will they exist forever? And the Bible uses that term zoe to speak more of a quality of life connected spiritually to the creator of everything that we see down here. And that's going to go on forever. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, just a few chapters ago. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And he's going to have all his needs met. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they might have life, zoe, and have it abundantly. Abundantly here is just describing a a life to the full, to the brim, overflowing, life connected to God, giver of life. How many people do you actually know that live their lives that way? I mean, to the brim, in abundance, because of Christ. Well, that's the first promise, the first promise of the divinely, supernaturally charged life. Because I live, you will also live. Promise number two, supernatural knowledge. We see this in verse 20. In that day you will know, here's the promise, that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So that could be a little confusing right there. So let's unravel it. Every time we read statements like that, we go, ooh, ooh, what does that mean? Jesus says, I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. Kind of sounds like the old Beatles song, I am the walrus, right? (laughs) With these really catchy tunes. I am he, and you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Okay, write an exposition on that and tell me what it means. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I'll read that someday. Right. What Jesus is telling his disciples is basically this. They're, they're worried. They're worried because he's been telling them he's going to be going. But Jesus is saying, look, look, my death that I'm talking to you about is not going to end our relationship. In other words, what they have, the bond that they share, is permanent and will not be dissolved. 
And they're going to know that. I mean, they know it now mentally because Jesus just said it. But they're going to know it for real because he's going to be coming back. And then he's going to send his Holy Spirit in. And by the way, um, when Jesus talks about knowing things, it's not textbook knowledge. It's not, oh, I read that statement somewhere. I read that in a book. I read a chapter about that. No, it means I, I get it. I understand it. I, I, I understand it because I've experienced it. That's what it means. So let's see if we can put it all together. After my resurrection, Jesus says, when you're really alive, you are going to know by your own experience and your own comprehension just how intimately close we are. So you and I need to grasp that the resurrection of Jesus Christ kind of brought a sudden realization to these disciples of Jesus Christ, who he really was. I mean, they were wondering up to this point. But when he gets up from the dead and the Holy Spirit Jesus sends to them arrives, they're going to understand things that totally baffled them up to that point. You ever wonder what it was like to spend three and a half years walking around with Jesus? All the while, you're going, who is this guy? They've even asked that question, who is this guy? Remember when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus sleeping in the boat, the storm is raging, they think they're all going to die, they think it's all over. They wake him up, Jesus speaks a word, wind stop, waves stop, sea, glassy calm. They turn to each other and they say, who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? What is interesting is we don't hear any answer from any of them that's a good answer. Nobody answers. They, they were in the process still of discovering who this man is. But when it's all said and done, when he dies, then he gets raised up from the dead and goes into heaven, and the Holy Spirit shows up. In fact, even before the Holy Spirit shows up, remember when uh, G G Thomas wanted to uh, touch his wounds to be sure he was, he was really, really real? Yep. He says, when he sees those wounds, he sees them. He says, my Lord and my God. He finally gets who Jesus is. This is kind of um, just what happened with, with the Gospel of John writer. John, he writes a book called First John. And in the first chapter, he sort of summarizes this. And you think he hasn't gotten it? Listen to this. First John 1 starts this way. That which was from the beginning. Where, where, is that, where does that conjure? Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Word of life. Oh, here's, here's something we can read in the first part of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all referring to Jesus. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing to these things, these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Why would their joy be complete? Well, when other people believe. Yeah, I've been hanging out with God, the one from the very beginning, he's the one we've heard and seen. And he goes on and on. When Jesus rises from the dead, it proves that everything Jesus had said about himself was true. It's one thing to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, anybody out here can say that. I can say it. Quite another thing for somebody who says it, to die and then three days later, get out of the grave, 
and soon thereafter send his spirit to live inside of them. So the resurrection is what separates the men from the boys. The big leagues from the minor leagues. Jesus from Buddha, Jesus from Krishna, Jesus from Muhammad, Jesus from Deepak Chopra, Jesus from Oprah Winfrey, right? The list goes on and on. You can say great things, but Jesus said what he said and then rose again from the dead. It's a promise of supernatural knowledge he's offering here. And the disciples are going to get that knowledge. And you and I are going to get it. I believe they got the whole package on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit zipped down and came upon them, right? Kind of a guiding principle. It's only when God puts his supernatural life within us that we all really begin to get it. Our spiritual eyes get opened. They can't be opened any other way. We can't apprehend or know certain things unless God does a supernatural work in our lives. And the disciples, they came alive with boldness and power because of this. Thomas, again, after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared, it's like he instantly gets it. As I said, he mentions, he sees Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. I loved the Peanuts cartoon growing up. Uh, the author would slip in a little Bible truth here and there that just made me happy. I remember specifically the one I have on the screen for you. I don't know if you can read it, uh, but I remember this, and uh, if you can't read it, let me just kind of go through it with you. Lucy and Linus are looking out the window. It's, it's as we say in Indiana, pouring down rain, and Lucy says, man, look at it rain. Well, what if it floods the whole world? Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. The third frame, Lucy says, You've taken a great load off my mind. The last frame, Linus quips, sound theology has a way of doing that. It's just priceless. We may not have any cartoonists today that have the guts to do this in any newspaper, or maybe even are capable of doing it in any newspaper, because maybe most of them are mostly dead. But you and I are able to read God's Word and have Him confirm things in our hearts and provide understanding to our minds that will engender a sense of security and cotton, uh, certainty and, uh, and security for us. And frankly, that's something the most brilliantly trained minds in the world never really know unless they begin to experience it. Supernatural knowledge, that's the second promise. Third promise, supernatural presence. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, verse 21, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Really important promise from Christ. Prompts an interruption. Prompts a question from Judas, not Iscariot. Right? Here's what Judas says. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How can you pull it off? You can show up, but only, no, only, us, only we are going to see you. That, that doesn't make any sense to us. Jesus answered him, well, kind of. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, talk about a promise of the supernatural presence of God. We're going to come inside that person. We're going to kick off our sandals and set up shop, set up home. That's our new home. Jesus goes on in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Okay, let's take a look at the word manifest, which is used twice. Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself, 21 22. So Jesus says, okay, let's, let's talk about this manifest thing for a second, Jesus. How are you going to manifest yourself just to us and not to anybody else? Manifest means to show, to exhibit, to disclose, or to appear. So once the Lord does his work in our lives, gives us some newness of life, resurrects our dead spirits, brings it to life, well, now we get it. We have the spiritual knowledge and certainty that, okay, things are true, but not everything we get right away, right? 
that's not the end of things. What happens next is, what's supposed to happen next is a deepening of the process where we get to experience the presence of God more and more and more. It's like when you dated your spouse, or your future spouse. Some of you might have to think back a long time. Remember when you dated and you fell in love? You wanted to be together all the time. You wanted to be with that person. Never wanted to call it quit. You wanted to keep on talking. You wanted to be together. Text wasn't enough. Phone call wasn't enough. You wanted to have a presence. You wanted to be in the presence of this person. That's the promise Jesus makes here. Once you taste the presence of God in your life, nothing else is supposed to satisfy. Nothing else can if you've actually experienced it. Uh, I graduated from college, uh, was headed to grad school. Jackie was one year behind me going to a school about 35 miles away in, in central Indiana. Uh, we ended up getting married that summer, and I promised her dad, because I pulled her out of her junior year, we, we, after she finished her junior year, she had one year left, but I promised her dad that I would make sure that she finished her final year of college, and I kept that promise. By the way, here's a photo of, the, of my wife, of a wife at that point. Um, her parents got to attend the graduation ceremony at George Mason. We were so proud. Anyway, we didn't have a whole lot of money. I got a graduate assistantship that was like $1,500, which bought, what, Fritos once in a while, once a month. Anyway, we survived grad school, as I recall, on two things. Beanie weenies, which for the uninitiated is a can of pork and beans and some hot dogs cut up and heated on the pan over the stove. And tuna noodle casserole. Not a tuna filet, not a tuna steak, tuna from a can, right? Here's the deal. Neither one of us can stomach either one of those dishes today. Now, you can imagine after a full year of that what a prime rib or ribeye steak or crab cakes or lobster or something like that would taste like. That would taste something that good, and you don't want to go back to beanie weenies or tuna noodle casserole. It's kind of like that with God. Once you taste what it is to have God manifest himself to you and in your life, once you experience that presence of him, you just want more and more of it. Now, Jesus promises his presence or manifestation will come and be at home in that person. Judas Iscariot, Judas not Iscariot, he's called Judas the son of James in, in the Gospel of Luke. He says this, okay, okay, now, now you're speaking about this whole manifest deal. How come you can do this? How can you do just to us and not anybody else? You know why I asked that question? Because all the disciples were thinking about one thing, and that's the earthly kingdom, messianic kingdom. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do. They're wondering about that. You're the king of the world. You're the Messiah of the world. How come you're just like operating behind closed doors, manifesting yourself just to us? Why don't you blast away at the whole world? And now Jesus answers the question, and he gives with the answer some conditions necessary for anybody to experience God. Not really a direct answer to the question that, Je that Judas asked. He says, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if you're counting in this section, this is the third time we've read where G G Jesus brings into play these conditions for certain of his promises to be fulfilled. It's the condition of our obedience to his word. What Jesus is saying here in verse 21 and 23 is essentially, I'm not going to reveal myself. I'm not going to manifest myself to those who refuse to love me, who have not expressed faith in me. And the proof of that faith, the proof of love for me, is obeying the commands, obeying my words. And in case anybody there, uh, there missed it in that room, Jesus makes the same point 
repetition, if you will, you know that, how important that is, they are to show their love by obedience. Very, very important truth. You'll never enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. You'll never enjoy the presence of God unless you are cooperating with God in a lifestyle that's conforming to his words, in obedience to his words. Um, you know, I believe it's possible that you can be saved, but not satisfied. To have salvation and not to really enjoy it. It's like you start to grow, and then you hit a snag, where something God says you don't like because you've got something you're doing that you really don't want to give up, or whatever, or something you're supposed to do that you don't want to do. So you stop conforming, and you start, you know, you, yeah, you kind of entrusted your life to Christ in the big picture way, but you're just enduring the present while looking forward to the future. You've come to that place Arthur Pink described this way. The manifestation of Jesus Christ is made only to the ones who really love him, and the proof of love to him is not some emotional display, but submission to his will. The Lord will give no direction or special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. I've known a lot of believers who live sub-lives with Christ because of this exact issue. And they wonder where in the world God went. God went nowhere. You, you did. To be obedient, you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus really loves you and wants the absolute best for you. Otherwise, you're going to be drawn away thinking that you know best what's best for you and you will begin to wither spiritually and end up less fulfilled in life. You'll just kind of exist. Dangerous stuff, because you might just discover in the end that maybe you were never really a follower of Christ at all. I'm not making that call. Thank God I'm not making that call. But God makes the call. Jesus is going to make the call. So be careful. Promise number four, supernatural revelation. Three tremendous promises already. Here's the fourth. In verse 25 and 6, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things... And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Hasn't Christ already promised the Holy Spirit in this passage? In this upper room discourse? Yeah, he has. He has earlier in the evening. But what he promised is that the Spirit would be another helper, another counselor, another comforter. Now he kind of adds a new dimension to it. This guy's going to be a teacher, a reminder. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to reveal new things. Question, and you guys get the answer up to this point in time, who has been the disciples' teacher? Nobody knows. Who spent three and a half years with the disciples? Thank you. Somebody. Somebody's alert. Yeah, Jesus actually said so in verse 23, still up there on the screen. These things I'm spoken to you while you're still, while I'm still with you. So he's been the teacher. They've been the pupils. So listen, how they, tell me how they've done in class so far. So who would you give an A to, or a B, or a C, or a D? Let's just take a couple of little classroom experiences, shall we? Jesus tells the disciples, I want to let you know what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Peter answers, no way, dude. Ain't going to happen. We're not letting that happen. Not in a million years. What grade would you give him? C? D, 
Maybe we look and see what Jesus responds to, that, that question. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, okay, that's probably an F. <laughs> Jesus calls you Satan, you probably, you probably funked that little, little, little pop quiz. How about the numerous times all 12 disciples fought over who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Okay, that's probably an F too. How about the time James and John asked Jesus, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy everybody in that village over there? Yeah, we could do that. We'd love to do that. Okay, probably another F. Did these guys ever learn? Did they ever graduate? Oh, yeah, they did. Peter, who gets an F, gets an A on the day of Pentecost with his extemporaneous sermon where it's 3,000 Jews who probably had clamored for Christ's execution all get saved. All of a sudden, things that made no sense to the disciples begin to make sense. Now, you probably had this experience where you read through the Bible and you read a passage, you read a text, and you go, man, I really don't, I really don't understand that. I really don't get it. Then you keep reading Scripture, and one day you go back and read that first one again, and you go, whoa, whoa, all of a sudden it dawns on you what that thing means now. There's some revelation that takes place. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit's, one of his ministries. Now, the promise made in 25 and 6, real quickly, answers a very fundamental question. You and I often have, a lot of people have, which is, how do these 11 uneducated, mostly fishermen, how are they able to remember all the stuff that Jesus taught in three and a half years? All the activities and profound truths that Jesus laid out. How do they record it for us in the New Testament without getting all screwed up? How they remember in details all the things that that got recorded. And this, guess what? No contradictions, even though they told the story from a little bit different angles. Well, that's the promise that Jesus makes. The teacher, the reminder, the resident truth teacher. Holy Spirit's going to bring things to your remembrance. So these are tremendous promises Jesus gives. So here's four promises. I want to give you four takeaways, application points. Number one, ask this about yourself. How's my life? How's my life? Am I literally living in concert with God, or am I just kind of existing? Am I just waiting for things to change? Number two, how's your knowledge? I don't mean how much theology do you know, how many scriptures you've memorized. I mean, are you experiencing God based on what you know? Are you experiencing the knowledge that you know, or is it just in your head? Question number three. How's your intimacy with Jesus Christ? He said he's going to come in and make himself at home in your life. And he's going to bring the Father and the Holy Spirit with him. Do you live in such a way as to make him a comfortable resident in your life? Or do you take him to situations where you know he's got to close his eyes and look the other way? Would you ever put him in a situation where he would feel uncomfortable to be there? To see what you're hearing, to see what you're watching, to see what you're saying, see what you're doing. How is that intimacy going? Is it being built up or not? And fourth, how's my relationship with the Holy Spirit? Is he instructing me? Is he teaching me? Am I learning from him myself as he's living in me? Or do I always need my favorite Bible teacher or TV show or the radio to tell me what that means? Otherwise, I'll never know anything. Is he teaching you and nurturing you? I'll close with this. Ann Landers, vice columnist, years ago got a letter from a little girl who was writing about her aunt and uncle. I want you to hear the letter. Dear Ann, my uncle was the tightest man I've ever known. 
All his life, every time he got paid, he took cash out of his paycheck, put it under his mattress. Then he got sick and was about to die. As he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. She goes, what, dear? I want you to promise me that when I'm dead, you will take all my money from the mattress, put it in my casket so that I can take it all with me. Well, he died. His wife kept her promise. She went in, took all the money out from under the mattress, went to the bank and deposited it, and then wrote out a check, put the check in the casket, saying, dude, if you can cash it, it's yours. <laughs> Funny little story brings up a very important point. Just like a dead person, spiritually dead person, or maybe a dead person can't cash a check, a spiritually dead person cannot cash in on these promises of Christ. It takes someone spiritually alive. And when you are alive spiritually, he promises you real life as a result of his spirit working inside of you. All his promises are going to just either lie there or you are by faith in Christ going to be able to cash them. If you do, you will achieve what the disciples achieved. You will be growing to know God better. You will be experiencing him more and more. You will be impacting the world around you in ways that you maybe hoped for but never even imagined that you would. You will be abundantly alive. I don't know about you. I want that for me. I want it for you. The only question really is, do you want that for you? As we take communion, good time to be reflecting on that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thanks for taking these words that you've said 2,000 years ago and reflecting them as you said them and as you meant them to be heard by your disciples. You did just what you promised you would do. You would make sure that we got your word unvarnished. So we are challenged this morning to love you more, to worship you more, to fold in with you more, to obey you more, not because we're feeling like we have to, but because we love you, we know you love us, and we want that closeness. And we pray that you would uh, instill us uh, a hunger for that as we take communion, reflecting on your death for us to make us all possible, but we got to step up and take cash it, cash it in. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and all you're going to do and all you want to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.